0: that really leads to this great chapter in chapter 8. I told you how that Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, really chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, really begin to hit the heart of where we're at as Christians and all the things that we have to really struggle with. I think they're some of the greatest material, and you know I I basically have brought you through, if you have been paying attention, I'm sure you have, I have been brought, bringing you through, uh, breaking it down almost verse by verse, because I wanted you to learn these chapters and get them into your Bible. But at the same time, I don't want to—I don't want to just give you the academics of the Bible. Uh, I don't want you to miss the practical side of things. And so I, I thought this week, you know, before I entered into chapter eight and really got into it, because I want to handle that chapter uh, really in a kind of a Kind of a unique way uh, to help you grasp all that material, because it 's probably one of the greatest chapters in the Bible for you and for me for the victory that we ultimately have in christ but i, I wanted to I wanted to kind of take uh, what we 've looked at and kind of put it into a perspective for us. Uh, give you a practical point of view of of what this material is we 've given you the you know the the study guide, so to speak we 've broken those chapters down and basically defined it all for you. Now I'd like to take just one message and kind of put it back into a practical point of view that'll help you. You know, my ministry, I've always tried to be this way where I try to balance it out. I don't always preach to you. Sometimes I teach to you. Sometimes I combine the two. And sometimes we work things around to help you grasp a better understanding of things. I think there's a value in that. And, you know, last week we looked at the heart of Romans chapter 7. We saw that uh that the real issues in our life is our flesh, and we also know now that uh, from the book of Romans chapter seven that the law has no more dominion over us once we're saved. Your flesh is now dead, and your soul is free to marry uh, another, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. You know everybody wants to be successful, uh, and we can there's no end of seminars that you could go to that 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 people who have been very successful in life, many of them are Christians, and uh, they will they will put on seminars. They'll bring in guys uh, around the country that are very uh, well off and have made some great uh, personal th- gains in their life. Many of them are success stories that they had nothing and now they've got everything, and uh, you know, and many of them have made their own fortunes and made their own lives, and. You can go to endless seminars where someone will tell you how to be successful. But over the years, studying my Bible and watching God, what He does in people's lives, and watching the men and the women that God has put into my life, I've come to the conclusion that success for a child of God is is real simple. It really doesn't take a motivational seminar. It really doesn't take, uh, you know, to go to anybody's seminar. I think the true success that God looks for in any child of God is simply this a man or a woman who simply, after they get saved, you find out what God really wants you to do with your life and then you give the rest of your life fulfilling that. I think that's the greatest definition of success that uh, we're ever going to find. And in light of Romans chapter seven, where we understand now that the problems that we all face is our flesh, you know, the bottom line is simply this, the quicker you and I learn to deal with our flesh and start walking after Christ, uh, and the Spirit of Christ, the better off we're going to be. Every year, when it comes down toward this time of uh, of, uh, of of the year, you know, at the end of the year, I look back over this church at the people that that over the last year has come through this door. You know what? People have come and and uh, and they're no longer here. And the people that maybe never really got plugged in, maybe somebody brought them and and, uh, you know, they've come in with problems into their lives, and many times, uh, you know, you've worked with many of them, and uh, they've had issues in their lives, and, and uh, they, never, uh, they never made it. And it always bothers me because, and I'll talk about this a little bit later on, but it always bothers me because uh, the thing that I really look for, uh, and, I, and I know about the Bible, is there's absolutely no reason, absolutely no reason for any saved person not to have the victory in Christ Jesus. And I, I see people that come in, you know, and they, 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 they seemingly don't make it. And they come for three or four weeks or maybe a month or two months and then, and then uh, you don't see them anymore. They start to get into the program and they start to go into a structure and you try to teach them the Bible. Many of you have started discipling them. They come in with issues in their lives, and uh, you begin to try to work them through. And of course, uh, it lasts for about maybe a month, two months, and they all follow the same pattern. It's 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 almost predictable. And yet, I want to say this before I, I I go any farther in this. We have some people in our church that that uh, that I am I I am so absolutely proud of. Many of you have come in with you into this church, and you've had some issues in your life. And you know, I never, I never, never, never point a finger at anything that anybody's ever done in their life. We all have baggage, and we all have things in our lives we're certainly not proud of, and we all have things in our lives that uh, when we didn't do what was right with God, and I'm certainly no one to point a finger at you, and you're certainly no one to point a finger at anybody else. We all are flesh, and we all have our up days and our down days. But I think the thing that impresses me more than anything else and gives me a deeper respect is that I've watched some of you folks come into this church who had some issues. You came into this church and maybe, you know what, uh, you didn't get saved and nobody ever discipled you or you just got saved or you were saved a while back but you never had anybody in your life and, and you know, you, you, you got into some issues into your life and those issues were kind of overwhelming to you and, and, and you're sitting here today, and I know this to be true, you're sitting here today when in actuality, you shouldn't probably be here. You shouldn't probably be here simply for this reason. Your problems were so overwhelming that in most cases, most people don't make it. And I have the utmost respect for you. I, I, it, you it, it endears me to you who have, that I have watched you struggle through things and do what is right in the face of situations that many times most people don't do what's right. You had an easy out and you didn't take it. And that means more to me by watching people and what they struggle with. So I want to preface what I'm saying today uh, and letting you understand that this message is to help you. I deal with people, and many of you deal with people, and you quickly learn, you quickly learn in dealing with people that life is about choices. You know, the whole Bible is a book built around choices. Do you know that? You realize that from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 20, that everything in the Bible is about a man having a choice? In the Old Testament, God came down to the nation of Israel and He established the nation of Israel as His people. And once He established them as His people, He gave the whole world a choice. He said, these are My people. I've set them in this land. If you want to have a relationship with Me, you've got to come through them. Now you have a choice. You can stay where you're at in your pagan culture or you can find God through My nation, the nation of Israel. That's your choice. When we get to the New Testament, God no longer has a nation. Now He has a church, the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. You and I, in our daily walk with God, we offer people a choice. We offer lost people. How many times throughout the week do some of you call me or I talk to you, uh, and you tell me about people that you're witnessing to at work? And you're telling the story of Christ. And you know what you're doing? You're doing what, the, you're doing what the Bible says that our job is. You're giving them an alternative. You're giving them a choice. They're lost without hope, without Christ. You're presenting out of the darkness into the light and giving them exactly what they need uh, in their life, and that is a choice. You know, once you get saved, the choice is not over. I mean, your eternal security is now set, and you're saved and you're going to heaven, but after you get saved, you have another choice. You know why? Because life is choices. And the next choice you have to make after you're saved, and it doesn't seem like it ought to be a choice, but it, it, it becomes a choice, is this choice. Are you, now that you are saved, are you going to give your life to God, or are you going to keep it yourself? See? Life is all about choices. The Bible is all about choices. You know, the whole Bible, uh, I told this to somebody this week, I don't remember where we were, I talked to so many people this week, I told somebody this week, you know, the Bible is built around two concepts, a wise man and a foolish man. you find them defined in the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Psalms. And then everything else in the Bible is built around a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man, the Bible says, uh, makes the right choices, and the foolish man, the Bible says, makes the wrong choices. You don't have to get involved in people's lives very long. You don't have to begin to disciple somebody past lesson one. You don't need to have to sit down with somebody, and most of you already know this, that are working with people. You don't have to sit down very long in dealing with people that you learn one of the greatest lessons in life, and you quickly learn that life is about choices. So it stands to reason the more bad choices we make over time, the harder it is to fix our problems. I mean, it's just as simple as that. You think that people could understand. It's like falling into a barbed wire fence. And bob wire was something that they come up with back in the 1800s, uh, and it uh, revolutionized a lot of things. And they'll take bob wire in the military, and they'll put it in long rolls like this. And, you know, you usually see it on fences. But they'll take it, and they'll put it into hoops like rolls. And they'll put a whole perimeter around, and they call it Constantine wire. They'll put a whole perimeter looped, and maybe then put another one tangled into it, and another one tangled in Sometimes I've seen them 8 or 9, 12 feet thick. And of course, the you know, in the middle of the night, if you're attacking something, uh, you get in the middle of that bob wire. Uh, you're fixed. You're, you ain't going anywhere. Bob wire is like the problems we get into. It's filled with little barbs on it. And you know what? The problem is when you fall into bob wire and you really get into it, really get tangled in it. The more you struggle, the more tangled you become. The only way to get out of a barbed wire entanglement, and in combat it never happens because you're there more than 10 seconds and you're probably dead. But in reality, if you, if you, the only way you can get out of a barbed wire entanglement is to stop what you're doing, quit fighting it, and then one barb at a time unhook yourself. And even that's going to take quite a long while because that's the, but that's, the way, that's the way we get in our lives. Our problems become a compounding effect. And the harder we struggle and the harder we fight, the more tangled we become. And there's only one way to get out of our problems, dealing with them one problem at a time. You know, my goal in the next year with where we're at and what we're doing, and I want to tell you, I am so proud of so many of you. I am so pleased with so many of you because I'm telling you, and I'm going to keep prefacing this all the way through my sermon because I want you to understand that this sermon is a summary of what we've learned. And I want you to know that some of you have learned those lessons, and I am so proud of you because you have actually stopped in your life, quit fighting it, and began to unhook yourself one barb at a time. I never, I never, i say it again, I never hold anything against anybody that they've done in the past. We've all made mistakes. I think the tragedy is not that we've all made mistakes in life, I think the tragedy becomes when we don't learn from those mistakes, and we continue to make those same mistakes. My goal next year with what's going on here and what God is doing in your life is to get as many of you as I can walking after the Spirit of God, helping you bringing this church along. We talked about last year being the year of the Bible, and we saw a lot of great things that God has done. And it's changed so many of your lives. And I I work with you every week, and I talk with you, and I see what God is doing in your life. And I, I, I am so proud of what God has done and what He's continuing to do. And I want to build on that. That's why I want to take New Year's Eve. And I want to designate that. And you know, we've always had some great things on New Year's Eve. We've had some great, and I always try to make them something that you can bring your friends to and that you can tell them about, you know, oh, we're going to talk about the problems in the Middle East. We're going to talk about UFOs or we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about that. And you get an interesting subject and you can bring a lot of people in and that's how the Spirit of God moves them. Well, I don't know how exciting it's going to be for you to tell your friends that we're going to really have a great time and how to build a relationship with God. That doesn't seem like as exciting as the Antichrist and how many words he's got on his left ear or whatever the case may be. But uh, I don't really care. I hope people come and everybody's welcome to come. But the truth of the matter is, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for every one of you who have really come through and done what God has wanted to do in your life. I want to help you have 2009 as the best year of your life. We're going into some tough times. Uh, It's going to get a lot rougher before it gets better. And if there's ever a day in our lives that we need to have what I call a working relationship with Christ that you understand where you are at with Him and where He's at with you, it's the day and age that we're living in. And I want to take that time and I want to help you and bring this church to the place because many of you are ready for that. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I don't want to get into the book of chapter 8 in Romans yet, but I want to take this verse and use this today because it's a great verse. It says this There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Help us today. Help us to take this lesson and lay it out and, and help these people, Father, who have, have come through some deep water. That's what the ministry is. It's helping people out of all of the things in their life that, that, uh, that would drown us and sink us. And Lord, we ask You, Father, to help us today. I thank You for all of the things that You've done in people's lives and how that, that You're such a good God. And, and Lord, that You love us. And I thank You, Father, for all that You do. We ask you now to bless our time today in Jesus' name, and for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now it says in Romans 8 1 that there is now, though, for, there's therefore now no condemnation which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Remember, I told you last week that there was two times of condemnation there's a spiritual condemnation where you die and go to hell and you're condemned to hell. Then there's a physical condemnation. Now, an unsaved person gets the spiritual condemnation. But a saved person, that's what he's talking about here. Notice what he says. He says, There is now therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That's a physical condemnation. That's a condemnation of your flesh. You know what that condemnation is? That's a condemnation that you lose your family, that you lose your marriage, that you lose your life, that you lose your job, that you lose your health, that you lose something because you walk after the flesh instead of walking after the Spirit. And that's what it's talking about. No condemnation. Physical condemnation is the baggage that we have in life because of the bad choices that we've made. And I want to talk to you today and try to help you understand that uh, uh, we, uh, there's some things that we can do. When I deal with people and, and people come to me and they've got some issues, uh, obviously when you start to deal with people that have severe problems, you know what? There's no way that you're going to be able to fix all of their problems. Some of them have a long uh, history of issues, and those issues have compounded over the years. But you know the first thing I try to stop in their life? There are, There's some things that I can't do today, and I'll tell them this. There's some things that I can't do for you today. We'll get those done in time. But there are some things that we can do right now. You know what we can do right now? We can stop making any more bad choices in life. That's what we can do today. We can put something in your life that will stop you from making any more bad choices in life. Let me ask you a question. If you go home from church today, knock on wood, I hope this doesn't happen to nobody. If you go home on church today and uh, you, uh, your pipes froze last night while you, were, uh, you didn't see it this morning, and you walk in there and you walk in your kitchen and there's got water hemorrhaging every place, water spurting out of the pipes. You've got two inches of water on the floor. It's running down the steps. It's getting everywhere. What is the first thing you're going to do besides call Bubba? <laughs> what is the first thing you're going to do? What? Oh, I love it. What? Oh, we are are on top of our game today. Everybody in unison. What is the first thing we're going to do? Shut the water water off. Well, if you've got problems in your life and you're hemorrhaging everywhere in your life, what is the first thing, and it's because of bad decisions in your life, what is the first thing you think we ought to start doing? Stop making bad decisions. See, That's where you start. There's some things you can do right now, and that is shut the water off. You know, bad choices are like going to the store and buying clothes. Do You ever notice that? Now, we've all made bad choices. I've made some terribly bad choices in my life, and I'm sure you have too. And uh, we all have, we're back in our lives, and it's like I said, this is not a finger-pointing session this morning. This is a summary of what we've learned so we can get the practical point of view. Do you ever go to buy clothes? Well, I, I, my favorite place is Walmart. I think Walmart has great prices and great clothes. But you ever notice you can got small, medium, and large? You ever know your bad choices fit in that category? you got small bad, small bad choices, and they don't seemingly affect you too much. You can get by with those. Then you got medium bad choices. And medium bad choices are a little more severe than the small ones, but you can still survive with that. But then you have large bad choices. Now it gets a little more complicated. But you ever notice when you go to Walmart, I don't know if this is true cause I, in other places, but I suspect it is, but you can, you know, you go to Walmart and it says small, medium, and large, and you get a deal, and I always get excited because the deal is small, medium, large for $9. And then as you get excited and you, then you see the next sign that says extra large size is $2 more. You know that? You know why? Because when you get to the extra-large bad decisions, and the extra-large bad decisions, it costs more money. It costs more money. Bad decisions are like buying clothes. Some of them you pay a standard price, and in some of them there comes more of a price. And you know what? Some you can get away with. Some will hurt you spiritually, and very frankly, some will destroy you spiritually in time. The problem becomes, and this is the issue, we make so many bad choices before we decide to do what's right, that when we decide to do what's right, we get overwhelmed with all of the baggage of the 10 to 15 and 20 years of the bad choices. You know what it looks like? I've, t- I've dealt with people. They tell me, you know what, Bob, it just seems like there's one disaster after another. When I begin to get a little farther ahead, it we begin to look like there's light at the end of the tunnel, bang, man, it all comes down again. People, and, and people will say to me, people will say to me, they'll say, Bob, I'm trying I'm doing what's right. I'm trying to do what's right. And I understand where they're at. When you're in the hole, man, and all you can see is the top up there, and it looks like there's nowhere out. I can understand how you can get to the point where you're saying, hey, look, I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to do what's right. Why won't God help me get out of this mess? Well, the answer to that is God will help you get out of that mess. But it's going to be one barb at a time. See? You know what's wrong with our country? And we're in serious issues. We're in serious issues. We had the housing problem where people saw a quick fix to get a house. We are one of the most greedy countries that you're ever going to find in the world. I'm appalled at what happened last week at, yes, Walmart, my favorite store, up in New York City. They had one of these specials, and there was 500 people lined up to get into Walmart when they opened the doors. And when they opened the door, the Walmart person who opened the door, there was the employee, got stampeded to death by 500 people. The Walmart employee got killed because they opened the door to let 500 bargain-hungry people in. And while he's laying there, and the paramedics are giving him, giving him. CPR to try to save his life, people are stepping over him to still get the bargains. And when the police finally clear the store out, there's people that are upset because somebody is dead and kept them from getting the Play-Doh or the PlayStation or whatever it was that they wanted to have in life. That is about as sick as this world can get. That's where we're at. It's that kind of mindset that has destroyed America. We had an issue with the housing problem where so many people are losing their homes. Some of the people are losing their homes because they're good people, but they got caught in the downward slide of everything else. Many of those people lost their homes because of the fact that they saw a quick fix. They took a loan. They never read the fine print. They looked at the immediate, not the long term. They thought, wow, this is a great deal. I'll worry about the other money later. And now across this country. And yes, it was, the, it was the lenders too. It was the banks who knew what they had, who shouldn't have gave people their loan, but they are greedy like the people are greedy and everything gets greed and it goes down the tubes. Now we're facing an issue with the automakers, the big three. We're facing an issue now where that uh, we're bailing out everybody. Before it's all done, you know, the veterinarians are going to get bailed out. The the post office is going to get bailed out. Everybody is going to get bailed out. We are printing money to bail everybody out that we don't have the money to print. And we ask, what are we going to do? We're not going to let the big three go down, and we're not going to allow 500,000 workers to lose their jobs. That will put the economy belly up, and it's already going down like the Titanic, and yet we're not going to do that. But the problem with all of that is this. Nobody learns anything. The automakers come in and the, and the CEOs, and I love that. The CEOs come in and they say, we need a bailout. He's making two, $22 million a year. He flew in on his private jet. They live like kings and they everybody down the line and the unions have got everything so set up that you cannot go to work and still get all the money you would have if you worked. It can't work that way forever in the real world. And the problem is we will bail them out. And because we bail them out, nobody will learn anything. You know why God doesn't come down and take all your problems away the moment you do what's right? You know why He'll let you go through those things? Because we don't learn any lessons if we just wipe away everything that does. He wiped away your sin. Thank God for that. But the bad decisions we make, sometimes they carry consequences, and the bigger shirt you buy, the more money you have to pay. And the bigger the decisions are that you make that are wrong, the more it comes with it. Yes, God will help you. God will help you get through it. But He's going to do it in your time. And if you think you're going to sow your wild oats and then simply pray for crop failure, it ain't going to work that way. You need to learn something and understand something out of Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7. Walking in the flesh will produce some long-term consequences. I've told you before, my favorite illustration... I worked at the Hoover Company, and I told you this before, when I first got out of high school before I went in the Army. And I worked there for quite a while, and uh, even after I got out of the Army. And uh, we had these storage areas, and my job was to go in and get uh, parts for all of the uh, washing machines on the line. You know, I drove a fork truck and, and keep everything in there. And we had these storage bins, that, that areas that were just went down for like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet. And on racks on all sides, they had all the supplies. They had everything you can imagine. I always thought to myself, because I, you know what, when you get mad at the factory and mad at the management, you know, and they don't think you treat you right, I always had had this, um, this idea that it would really be fun to start at the front of that aisle and just take my frustration out by ripping everything down. I mean, buckets of little parts that just would scatter everywhere. All kinds of hoses. All kinds of belts. Just walk down that thing saying, I'll show you. Ram, 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 ram. Whoa, look at that. Watch this. And throw stuff over there and just throw it down and push it down. Throw it down and uh, all the way down. Now I'm at the end of that thing, man, and i got. got, I mean, it is a mountain of stuff. And I'm saying, that'll show you. Then I decide I'm going home. Oh. There ain't no door here. You know what I suddenly realized? My only way out is through the mess that I created. And I have to pick up the mess to get out of the mess that I caused. And you know what? It took me a lot longer to pick it up than it did to throw it down, didn't it? You ever notice around this time of the year? How easy it is to gain 10 pounds? Amen. Thank you. One honest man in the church this morning. And how long it takes to lose 10 pounds? Yeah. Remember, guys, when how the older you get, the harder the more you put. I'm not even talking to you women because women don't gain weight as they get older, but men do. Yeah. yeah. Remember, guys, I used to walk around at the beach with that six-pack? Now your sick packs are turned into a keg. <laughs> 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 takes nothing. It took one it takes one 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 holiday. You step on that scale and it woo, woo 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 you know, and the fire trucks start coming and everything, you know. Takes a long, longer to get it off, doesn't it? It's true of everything in life. You know, 30 years in dealing with people and their problems, I've gained some tremendous insight. And I've I've cataloged in my own own little area where I keep things for help people some of the major factors that that contribute to some of the bad choices that we make. And this is why a lot of the people that, that come in with problems, I mean, some of them that come in, you know, throughout the year, and I'm here to help everybody. I'm an equal opportunity employer. Everybody gets a fair shake here. You can have whatever you want. I'll put as many people as it needs. Like I told somebody a couple of weeks ago, I said, you know what, honey? I said, I can put 10,000 people with you, but it won't make any difference if you don't do what we tell you to do. I mean, because at the end of the day, it's your problem. I can put people to help you, but I don't have a pill that is going to make you problems go away. You have to take and you have to deal with that. And I found in dealing with people that that will come in, and I I, I feel such a burden for them because I see where they're at. And I think it's even harder because I understand where they're at. And it frustrates me that sometimes, you know, the devil never misses a trick. There was an old saying when I was growing up as a young man. I think Bob Jones Sr. said it the old man Bob said a lot of one-liners that were so profound. And he said something one time that I had ingrained in me by all the men that taught me the Bible. And it was simply this. He says, you know what? Sin never leaves a man any better than it finds him. And boy, that is so true. But I've cataloged in my own mind, I think the number one thing that that is attributes to the fact where people don't make it is the fact is the absolute of self-discipline. We live in an absolutely, absolutely absolutely undisciplined society. I have never seen in some of the people that I've worked with uh, over the last couple of years that uh, the absolute lack of self-discipline. People who can't do something right four or five times in a row. I mean, absolute dysfunctional breakdown of self-control. And no self-discipline will always lead to walking in the flesh. The absence of self-discipline Uh, It will affect every area of your life. It'll affect your finances. It'll affect your job performance. It'll affect your family. It'll affect your children. You know, I've told you all through this. The key uh, to this thing is consistency. But the key to consistency is self-discipline. I've known people that, you know, you try to get them in the Bible. They can't read the Bible seven days in a row. Something gets in their life that keeps them from doing that. I try to tell them when I work with them, you know what? Here's the deal. Here's the deal. You've got some issues, and we can fix those issues. But here's what I want you to do. I mean, it isn't like I give them a, a back-breaking program. I tell them this. Be here Sunday morning. Be here Thursday night. Let me put somebody in your world, or in some cases, three or four people in your world, to help you walk you through where you're at. And you know what? People can't even get the Sunday morning and Thursday night on a consistent basis. There's so much clutter in their world. There's so much baggage that they bring in from where they've come from. And they just don't have the discipline, the discipline to do what you have to do. And they lose their focus. I, I watched it when we, you know, I, we have a, I don't, I don't there's a, and, and you don't won't know who this is. There's a guy that comes to this church and he shows up about every four or five months. And every four or five months, and he's got some severe issues. And you don't know who he is, so it's not like I'm telling a story. you never figure it out. You wouldn't even know he's here. And, uh, but uh, every time he comes to me, every time he comes back to church, he pulls me aside and he says, I really want to serve God. I really want to do something. Uh, can I, what, what can I do? What can I do? You know what my last statement was to him? I said, come to church four, four weeks in a row. Try that for just starting out. He'll come one time, and you won't see him for three months. He's got so many issues in his world, and he's got some serious issues. And it, 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 he's got so many issues in his world that he cannot get the church just two Sundays in a row. Now, I'm barring the fact that you work or your kids are sick. I mean, please understand, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody coming in with issues. I mean, if you went into the, if you were just in a bad car wreck and they took you into ICU and took you into the emergency room and the doctors came in there and the doctors started working over you to try to save your life and try to do this and try to do that. And you know what? And they got you to the point where, uh, and you just got up and walked out of the emergency room and said, well, I'm feeling a little better now. And the doctor said, well, you got a concussion and you got this. Yeah, but I got a ball game. I got to go to. And you know what? You're going to die. When you're that serious off, you better listen to somebody who knows how to fix the problem you've got, but the reason why they can't, no self-discipline. No self-discipline. And we lose our focus. Uh, this, guy, I, this guy signed up when we, when we did our thing. He was here just not too long ago, and he signed up for the soul winning class, like many of you did. And I thought to myself when he signed up for it, you know what, that's three weeks away. He'll never be here. There was people that signed up for the soul-winning class that came the first that couldn't get to the second one because they got so much clutter in their life. Something happened between the first one and the second one. There's no discipline. There's no consistency in what you got to do. One of the things that you have to begin to do is get the clutter out of your life. You know what the second thing is I see people have when they come in? Stubbornness. You get into a problem because you won't listen to good advice. Good advice. You know what? And you stay in problems because you won't listen to good advice. The book of Proverbs is full of things that talk about something like this. The wise man who takes instruction versus the fool who can't take instruction. And it's that simple. And we get people who think that, you know what, I'm going to do it my way. And you've done it your way all of your life. Look at the mess you got it in. We've got people that think that, uh, that they're not going to listen to anybody. I, I've had people that I have put you with. And you know this is true. You know, you know this has happened in our last five years. People have come in, and when they come in, they're all broken up, and they're all this, and they're all that, and they want to do this, and they want to be a missionary to Timbuktu, and everybody around the world, you know, and they're ready to get, it's a come to Jesus time, man. And you know what? You begin to work with them. You begin to take them through the Bible, and you begin to see it is, isn't what, two or three weeks that they start dictating to you. ain't ever going to work. There has to come a point in your life when you come to the end of self. You have to come and get a reality check, like Dr. Phil says. How's that working for you? I mean, you've come to the point where nothing you've done in your life has put you into the mess that you're in. You have to re- realize that, you know what, you better change your stubborn ways and realize that you don't have the answers and get with somebody that does. You know the third thing I find? Pride. 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 Bible says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, that pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. I've found people that come in, and they've got issues, and they don't want to pretend they don't have any issues. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Years ago, I had a young man, that was and he was a good guy. And I had to take him out of ministry. And it was one of the hardest things I ever did. But he had some problems in his marriage that he wouldn't deal with. And uh, he was one of these guys that tried to shove his problems underneath the thing. You know, he's the kind of guy that when, when, he, when, when you try to teach him something, I mean, uh, and I tried to work with him, you know. His wife was talking to me behind the scenes and saying, hey, look, you know what, my husband's this and he's doing that and he's not doing right with this and I'm not getting ministered to and yet he can go minister to everybody else but he doesn't take care of me. And she said, but you can't tell him because if you do, he's going to get mad at me. And he's a very prideful guy. And I and I and I said, well, why do you think he won't? And he says, he, she says, well, she says he's afraid. He's afraid that if you, you know, he's afraid that uh, you know you, you'll be mad at him and all of these things. And I said, well, I love him. I'm not mad at him. And I I I I went on with the thing, and you know, and and I. He was the kind of guy that if you went to a class, and you taught him a class, I I I put him into a, I put him into a a a family kind of orientated class. And hoping, you know, that he'll pick up. God's oh, spirit will touch him on the shoulder. You know, you know what he got out of class? Oh, he got out of the class. I was, oh, I'll learn this so I can teach somebody else. It was never, I'm going to learn this to apply it to my family first. It was, forget the family. I want to go out and teach everybody else. Well, after about a year and a half of that, his marriage went down to tubes. And I had to pull him out of ministry. And I asked him, I said, why, why, why didn't you come to me when we could have fixed this? Now your wife is done with it. She doesn't want to mess with it anymore. We've got a serious issue here. You know what his answer was? He says, "Bobby says, I was, pr- I was afraid that if I came to you with a problem, that you would take me out of my ministry. And I said, what a stupid thing. Because you know what? You just took yourself out of the ministry. I wouldn't have taken you out of the ministry. I'd have worked with you within the process. But because you did not, because of your pride, because of your arrogance, now God took you out of ministry. I didn't do anything. Pride. Pride. Pretending you're something when you're not. Pretending you don't have any problems when you do. You know what the fourth one is? Lack of courage. Lack of courage. I want to tell you something. It takes courage to admit you got issues. I think Joshua chapter 1 is one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible that deals with courage. And in that great chapter, it talks about the aspect of courage to believe the Word of God. Courage to obey the Word of God and courage to rest in the Word of God. Yeah, we talk about, you know, standing for the King James Bible. And that does take courage because you're going to get blasted wherever you go. You're going to get blasted wherever you go. And you guys tell me all the time where you're at work, and Nikki was telling, Halliburton was telling me this morning about a guy she was witnessing to at work and talking about the King Jane Bible, and and, uh, you, you all do that. And it takes courage to be able to stand up for something when nobody else in the world believes it. But you know what it takes more courage to do? It takes more courage to obey what the Word of God says. It's one thing to stand up and proclaim it. It's something else to take it internally and obey what it says and then it's even harder to rest in it. I have so much respect for those people who, in spite of all of the things that they've been through, all the baggage that and the bad choices they've made, and I, again, I keep saying this all the way through it. I'm, this is not a message of, of consternation. This is not a message of, of, of putting somebody down. This is a message of honesty and opening and realizing that of Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7, with all that we've learned, walking in the spirit versus walking in the flesh, there's a practical point, and there's some things that we need to understand. You know what the fifth thing is? The last thing I find in most people that won't fix their problems, and the reason why so many people don't make it, is because they're dishonest. Oh, I don't mean they stole any money. I don't mean that they, they, they stole your car. I don't mean that you can't leave them in a room in your house and go another room and they won't steal your silverware. I'm talking about they're honest, dishonest with themselves. They deceive themselves. You know, we get people, they get into financial problems and they think the first thing, well, if I just had more money. We get people that, that uh, you know, that don't read their Bible and your answer will be, well, if I just had more time, I'd read my Bible. We have people that say, well, I can't get to church or I can't come to this because i got too much going on in my life. The problem is that you can't live, that you you don't need more money. You don't deal with the money you already have. The problem is the fact that you could give you a million dollars and you'd just be in a million dollars more of a mess. The fact that the problem is you're not doing right with what God has given you. There's no balance in your life. Your problem is you can't live with what you have. You're out of balance, there's no discipline, and you are failing to see the fact that the problem is, I don't need more stuff. All I need is to manage the stuff I have. My Bible says that God shall supply all your need according to His riches in Christ Jesus. Not your wants, your needs. Now we all have wants, and I'm as as big as wanter as anybody. I looked at those presents that she put under the tree up there, and None of them had my name on them. (laughs) I'm just like you. I want things. But there has to be a balance in it. I'm not saying you go through life with only what you need. You only need one pair of shoes. Pam, how many you got? (laughs) Jamie, how many you got? Bob, how many do you have? (laughs) I got three tubs full. I used to tell my kids when they were growing up, when they'd want something, like a pair of shoes, you know, I always give them this story Honey, I once said, I really want those shoes. Then I saw a man who had no feet. They said, What's that got to do with anything? Dad, I want them shoes. (laughs) Didn't work. We all have wants. Need a jacket? Come to my house. My wife always gives me a tough time, so my like, yeah, kids, everything I buy, buying twos. I mean, to me, that's just biblical. Two by two, they went into the ark. <laughs> two by two, he sent them out. I mean, hello? You just guys wish, wish you were as biblical as I am. You see, we don't need more stuff till we learn how to deal with the stuff that we have. Every year I look back at the people who came through this church. You know, in almost every case, I'm talking about the ones that, they never really plugged in. They come in with issues. You brought them in. Most of you brought them in. You saw that they had issues. You said, hey, come here. You know, there's a great church. This is where you're going to hear some Bible. They came in. You you maybe met them at work. You maybe invited them and they came and they sit and they come up to me and they said, "Man, this is great." They came what a month, two months, three months, four months. They came in and sat down with me and we talked about the issues in their life and they said, "You know what? I really want to fix them. I really want to do this. I'm going to quit this. I'm going to quit that." Hey, all good, man. I begin to work them with you and put them into you and you begin to work with them, begin to disciple them, begin to help them. Many of them I put. Numbers of you around them, we've had people that, men and women who've had some serious issues that I put, and I love it, eight or nine people are like a little support group that they can call and they can help, and you help them get through those times. Why didn't they make it? In every case, in every case, almost without exception, in every case, they didn't make it because they couldn't overcome the baggage of 10, 15, 20 years of bad decisions. And they didn't have these things in their lives, and that's why I have such a respect for those of you that do. When I see somebody that comes into this church, and again, I don't fault anybody for the problems that you have, I really don't. When I see somebody come into this church who who have had nobody ever help them with the Bible, and maybe they never seriously got involved with the Bible or, the, or any church, and they come into their they come into the they come into this church and they actually want help and they actually do exactly what the Bible says. They let the people who are working with them minister to them. They actually get into their Bible. They actually get their three by five cards. They actually memorize the scriptures. They actually come Thursday night, Sunday morning and everything that we do. They actually make this church their spiritual home. They actually take the things out of their life that are wrong and put the right things in and begin to make that transition. I have more respect for you than you'll ever know. The deck was absolutely stacked against you. And you're on your way. You're on your way. You know, there's two great examples of that in the Bible. And there are examples that you had to mark in your Bible. The first one's Lazarus in John chapter 11. Now, here's a man that we know that he was dead. And dead in the Bible is a picture of an unsaved man. And then he comes back to life. Jesus gives him life, a picture of a man getting saved. But we see now that uh, he's got a problem. He was dead, unsaved. Now he's alive, he's saved. But the problem is, he's wrapped in grave clothes. Those grave clothes represent all the bad choices, all the bad decisions. Lazarus was a guy probably in his 80s, maybe in his 90s. He was an old guy. And you've heard me say before, the longer you live, the more you bind yourself up in problems when you don't turn to God. And the the grave clothes that were wrapping him and keeping him from going anywhere, even though he was alive, even though he was alive, he had to have help unwinding all those grave clothes. Now, do you think that they did, they just got him a pair of medic scissors and, and snipped him right up the middle and they just peeled him off? No, they had to unwind that thing one layer at a time. And if you know anything about the way they embalmed people back then and the way they wrapped them, it was quite a process. I mean, you had nine or ten layers on you. And it was it was a, it was a tedious process, to, to but the Bible says that Jesus said, loose him and let him go. But here's a picture of, of many people's lives when they get saved. They're bound in the old dead things that they've done for so many years. They're bound, they're, they're wound tight. And it's no wonder that they come in and they struggle. It's no wonder they come in and many of them don't make it. It's no wonder that they come in and they have issues and they have, but the bottom line is, at the end of the day, the Bible and life is about choices. The Bible and the life is about choices. I didn't tell you guys in Institute last night this particular story when we're coming through the book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 13, when you're looking there at uh, 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 the church at Antioch, when you come down there and it, it lists the people that were in Antioch, the last person it lists was a guy by the name of Madrian. And Madrian, the Bible says, was a brother, uh, was a nephew, or some connected, to, 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 oh, it was a brother of, uh, a brother of Herod the Tetrarch that killed John. Now, did you ever get grasp that? You talk about the hand of God. Remember Herod that killed John the Baptist, had his head cut off? Well, there's one brother that killed John, that his other brother, Madrian wound up in the church at Antioch serving God. You know what that tells me? They both had the same choice. How come one made it and one didn't? How come one killed John the Baptist, God's greatest servant in the early part of the New Testament, had him killed? The other one turned to Christ and did everything that God wanted and winds up in the model church as one one of the men that are leaders of that church? You know how that happens? You know the answer to that? The answer is, life is choices. They both were raised in the same Roman Empire. They both were raised in the same godless scenario. One did it, one didn't. One made it, one didn't. You know why? Because life is choices. Life is choices. And we make the choices we make. Many times put us in a situation like Lazarus, where once we get saved, you need to stand still. You need to stand still so we can unwrap you. Then you have another example in Judges chapter 18, and that's my buddy Samson. Samson is a perfect picture of, of many people that we deal with in this church, that come into this church, and you're going to deal with it at work. He's a perfect example of people that come into this church. He's a perfect example of most Christians that you find today. And they're good. You know, Samson's one of the nicest guys you ever met in your life. There's not. I, he's just a goofball. He doesn't do anything mean to anybody. He's just a clown. He's just a free care guy who just loves life. <clears throat> I mean, he, he's the kind of guy that if you met him, you'd probably like him. He probably would be a nice guy to talk to. Yeah, I don't ever see him bullying anybody. I don't see him ever being smart or mean to anybody. He's just a he's just your general garden variety nice guy good old boy type of guy who just can't get a handle on it with God. And you're going to find that his whole life, his whole life can be summed up by the fact that he wanted to make his choices in life and every choice he made was a bad choice. The friends he hung out with, the women he hung out with, the places that he went, I don't know of one good choice that he made all of his life. And you know where it got him? It got him at the end of his life where God had a plan for Samson and that plan never got realized. He never fulfilled it in the way that God intended for him to fulfill it. He never got used of God one time in his life till at the end of his life when God used him in spite of himself. Because he gets taken over by the Philistines. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of you and I doing our thing so long that the Philistines of the world gets absolute control in our lives. And now here he is, the man of God, the child of God. He's, he's chained uh, between two pillars. And the world now is making fun of him. The world is laughing at him. The world is making sport with him. They've stripped him naked. The world is standing around him. And where he should have been open and transparent for God in dealing with people. No, no, no. He had to play the game. Play the man. Be the fun guy. And now he's the laughing stock. The man of God. A saved, born again child of God. The laughing stock of the world. Chained to the pillars of the Philistines. He's out of control of his life. And the Philistines now have him under control. They put his eyes out. Those were the eyes that he lusted after the women with. Those were the eyes, the first words out of his mouth. The first time you find him opening up his mouth and saying anything, he says, I saw a woman If there's any example in the Bible that goes along with a Lazarus that shows you that walking in the flesh instead of walking in the spirit produces some bad choices, some consequences that maybe will carry on down through your life. Oh, I'm not saying you can't get out of it. I'm saying you got to get out of it one barb at a time you got to get to the point in your life where you do it God's way and you cease doing it your way. I have a message I preach on Samson. The message is a three-point outline. It starts out by talking about Samson's life. Samson's disobedient to his parents. His disobedience to God. His disobedience in all the lifestyle that he brings into his world. And at the end of his life, we find the, the culmination of his bad choices. We find a model of our lives, where it's going, when we insist on doing it our way instead of God's way. And we find in the end of His life a three-point outline that sin binds you, sin blinds you, and sin grinds you. My God, what an example. And I say it again. Old Bob Jones Sr. said, sin never leaves a man better than it finds him. Good you know, old the ministry has a good side and the ministry has a bad side. And learning to minister means you have to learn to deal with both. It would be nice just to deal with the nice things in ministry and not have to deal with the bad things, but it doesn't work that way. The good side of the ministry is the people who, who fall in love with the Word of God. I don't care where they've come in life or say it again, what they've done in life. They turn the corner and they begin to do what the Bible says and God changes their life. The thing that keeps me going in the ministry and keeps me pumped up in the face of all the bad things you have to deal with is just simply plainly many of you individuals. When I see your courage, and there's days that I get down. There, you think there isn't days that I don't want to just go someplace else? You think there isn't days where you just get tired of it? You think there was in days when you got 200 people and, and, and 25% of them are whammy mammies that if you don't talk to them, they get mad and you got to call them like in a nursery. You think it doesn't get old? You think you don't want to wear a size 15 shoe sometime on just plant it where it needs to be planted? <laughs> but the good side of all of that, the balancing out, the checks and balances is the ones that really love that book the ones that no matter what, you're going to make it. The ones that no matter what you're going through right now or what you're struggling with, that you're going to get through because you have decided. You have decided that you're not going to make any more bad choices. You have decided you're going to do what God wants you to do. You know, I had to go over to the doctor the other day and it's over at the hospital in St. Joe Hospital. And I I don't hardly go any place, and I don't, just be every place I go, everything I look at, everything I read, I'm always trying to put it in some kind of spiritual, and I'm not even trying, it just comes into my head, I don't even know, I'm, I think I've got brain damage someplace along the line, and I'm walking in here, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, a hospital is a lot like a church, a hospital is a lot like a church, you have two kinds of people in a hospital, you have two kinds of people in a church, in a hospital, you have two kinds of folks, you have people who are patients and people that work there. At a church, you have the same kind of people. You have people who are patients, and you have people who work here, helping the people that are sick. That's our job. That's our job. That's our job. And yet you're going to find that people come in, and the bad side of it is people who have great potential. And I think it bothers me more than anything else in the world, because I don't care what you do. I really don't. I don't care what you've done. I, I don't care. We could, we could have a show-me-tell-me night, you know, and we'd all be in the same boat. I don't care what you've done. What bothers me and hurts me more than anything else in the world, and it's probably for me, who, is a, who I'm a people person. I mean, come on. I love people. My life is people. The thing that hurts me more than anything else in all of this world is to see a young man and a young lady that I see underneath the baggage has the potential to do something for God, but never realizes that potential. That, to me, that's the most tragic thing I can think of. I I don't think I've ever met maybe one or two people in my life. Maybe only one or two in almost 35, almost 40 years in the ministry. Maybe one or two. And I can't even think of their names. I'm just giving me an out. I don't think I've met more than two people in all my life that I saw, of all the people that I've met, I don't think there were more than two people that I said to myself, they'll never make it. They're so far gone. They're so far bad. They'll just forget it. I might find two people back in my 40 years. You know what that tells me? That tells me that everybody else that I've ever worked with, ever been associated with, everybody else that's ever come through, whatever ministry I ever had, wherever I had it, in my mind had a chance to be what God wanted them to be, but because of the bad choices, they chose not to. To me, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. You know what a tragedy is for me? If you're a member of this church and you come here every week, the tragedy is with what you get and what God provides for you and what you have at your resources, at your disposal. For you to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and be naked and lose everything that you have after God has given you the opportunity He's given you here. I can't speak for any other church, but I can speak for this one because I know I'm going to give an account someday of the judgment seat of Christ and I'm going to give an account of a lot of things and I don't expect to have a golden crown or I, I, if I just get a pair of Speedos, I'll be happy. That'll be a sight. What are you laughing at? <laughs> Honey, there ain't nothing speedo about me anymore. But I'll tell you one thing I'm not going to be guilty of. I guarantee you. I got a lot to give and account for, and I know it. But I'll tell you one thing I'll never be guilty of. That is not providing you with everything you need. 24-7 in this church. There is absolutely no reason for you not to get everything you got coming to the judgment seat of Christ, other than you choose not to. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. Bible says in Second Timothy chapter two, verse four it says, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who has called him, who has chosen him to be a soldier. You know, when you got saved, God called you to be a soldier. You know what He says to you as a soldier? Don't get entangled. That's a great word. You know what you get entangled in? Bob wire. Don't get entangled in the things of this world. Don't get tangled up in them. Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12, a threefold cord is not easily broken. I've used the example before. You take a little piece of sewing thread, you know, wrap it around your finger one time, you just snap that sucker. Take that thing and wrap it around two times, you can still snap it. Wrap it around three times, four guys are really strong. That. You take that little piece of thread and wrap it around your finger a hundred times. And if you have to break that on your own to save your life, you will die. That little thread represents the bad choices in life and how many times we wrap it around our fingers is how many times we allow them in our life. There comes a point in your life, you know, Joe J. Harold Smith he used to preach the message Payday Someday, great message. He also had another message that he's much less known than that one, but I thought was even better. You know what it was? It was called the point of no return. He talked about Christians who got to the point in their life, or people who got to the point in their life because they brought so much baggage into the world that their circumstances would never let them ever get what they need out of Christ. It isn't because God won't do it. It's because of the circumstances in your life, the baggage you're carrying. You really Think of it this way. You're a swimmer, and you're swimming. How long can you swim when every time you make a bad choice, somebody puts 10 pounds on your ankles? That's why the Bible says, and Paul says, the, the weight that so does easily beset us in the book of Hebrews. You get to the place in your life where your circumstances, uh, your daily life is so out of control, you have no say in it anymore. You don't control yourself. yourself you, your circumstances now control you. That's a bad situation to be in. We can reverse that process. I see people come into this church with issues. You know what I think of? I think they look like they're in a canoe, and they've lost their paddle, and they're in a raging river, and they can't get out of that canoe. They can't stop that canoe. They can't guide that canoe. They are a victim of that raging river, and that river just takes them wherever it wants to go. And many times our circumstances do the exact same thing. We're out of control. We're in the boat, but we ain't got a paddle. (laughs) I won't tell you how the rest of that goes. We're in a boat. We have no paddle. We have no way of getting out. No way of stopping it. And wherever life takes us because of our consequences and choices is where we go. Well, you know what we want to do? We want to throw you a boat rope. We want to get you out of the boat. We want to get you to the place where we help you get into the place in your life where you need to. God's people, sometimes their lives are so complicated and so compounded with the bad choices made, they can't made, they can't even get anything going in their life. You know, I think the greatest example of what my life should be and what your life should be, if you just want one solid example of a of, 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 of successful man being led by the Spirit of God, and that was, the, you know, that was the opening verse, there's now no condemnation to them that walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh. I think the greatest example, personally for me, is in Acts chapter 8 with the story of, the, of Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch one of the greatest illustrations of what God wants for us and how we should be available. You know, He's doing something for God over here, but God had a plan over here. And what God did is God had the freedom and the ability to pick him up and take him wherever God wanted him to go by the Spirit of God. You realize that Philip had a great revival going on in Samaria. You realize that when God picked him up, he never complained one time. He never said, "Well, you don't understand. I'm the head evangelist here. We're having thousands of people saved. I can't leave right now." No, no. He wasn't controlled by what he was doing. He was controlled by the Spirit of God that was doing it through him, and the Holy Spirit of God picked him up and brought him over and put him down on the backside of the desert with an old Ethiopian eunuch. You know, in my in my military studies, uh, I don't know if you know this or not. Maybe most of you, of you might. Every. And they still do it today, I think, but I know they did it in World War II. At the end of World War II, there was such a pride in the military uh, organizations, like the diff- different divisions, that each one of them kind of did a, a, a history yearbook. I don't know if you know it or not, but every action that an infantry regiment did went into the daily reports and is stored someplace that they have a walking chronology of what they did. And every, every regiment had a, a, an assigned photographer that took pictures. And so, what after the war, what they did is they, they sold them to the veterans, and many of them, guys, bought them. And they, they, they sold them to a veteran, and they're, they're hardback, and they, they, they tell the history with the pictures, and it's kind of like a, a, a keepsake of where your infantry regiment had been or what airborne regiment, whatever it was. They all did it. A while back, I got a grouping out of a guy that he's dead now, and uh, I got his helmet, and I got his book. And he was in the 9th Infantry uh, Division, in the 39th Infantry Regiment. And I, I did a little research on him, and the book really helped a lot. And I flung through the book, and I found the 39th Infantry Regiment. And in there, it, was, it, talked, about a, it talked about the commanding officer. He, in fact, he was killed. He was killed, and uh, it was a great story. His name was Colonel Harry Flint. They called him Patty. He was, a, he was an Irishman. And he was an older guy, really too old to be in charge of an infantry regiment, but he was. And this guy was a hard-as-nails guy. And his motto was anything, anywhere, anytime, bar nothing. And he instilled that into these guys, that we need to be ready for anything, anywhere, anytime. In fact, he instilled it into it so much. And I don't know what you know, but during World War II, they, they usually put their division signage, sign- as many of them did, on the sides of their helmets. And on the side of this guy's helmet... And in a book, it's filled through it with the 39th Division. They painted on the side, it on the side, A, 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 zero. He ingrained into them so much that they ought to be ready anytime, anywhere, for anything, bar nothing. And when I looked at that, I thought to myself, you know, back in World War II, a private in the infantry made $23 a month. $23 a month. These guys were willing to do anything, anywhere, anytime, bar nothing, for $23 a month. And I thought to myself, you know what? That's exactly what we need to have. We need to have that attitude. We need to realize that God has a plan for you and for me. And that old Philip and that Ethiopian eunuch is an incredible picture that God picked him up one place and set him down someplace else because he had a job for him. And Philip was ready for anything, anywhere, anytime, bar nothing. And boy, we ought to keep our lives so fluid. We ought to not be entangled into the things of this world. We ought to be set in everything that we do, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and and consistent in our lives, that whatever God wants to take us, Whatever God wants to do with you. Oh, He's not going to pick you up and drop you on the backside of the desert, I don't think. He's not going to pick you up and drop you over somewhere around the world, maybe this time in your life. But you know what? I guarantee you there's places where you go every day. There's places where you work right now. There's people under your authority or people in your world right now that He wants to have you ready for anything, anywhere, anytime, barring nothing. And we're not ready for that assignment. It's an incredible story. I read somewhere over the years, and I don't remember where I read it at. I read somewhere over the years that it takes three to four weeks to develop a really bad habit. Three or four weeks to develop a really bad habit. You know, train your flesh. I remember when I went to the doctor here last two years ago, my sugar, blood sugar was too high. So the doctor says, you've got to quit drinking anything that's got sugar in it. Well, my life's over. I mean, what is there left? And I came home and I said, it's done. I'm done. I'm done. I said, there's nothing left enjoyable in life for me. Because the thing I enjoyed more than anything else in the world, you're sitting down at night with a couple of big old frosty cans of Coke. Mountain Dew is really good, but you got to put it in the freezer. What are you laughing at, Jeanette? you got to put it in the freezer and time it. You don't want it solid froze. You want it slushy. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. They're gone. Now, let me tell you the truth. Does anybody here like Diet Coke? Oh, you just, you're just you lying, Pat. You don't like it. If you had your rather you drink the real stuff. I hate it. And you know what? I don't care what they try to tell you about it. They try to mix little things in it. It doesn't work. It still tastes plastic. It's like drinking water out of my dog's water dish. My wife said to me, she said, you know what? If you start drinking it, She says, in about four or five weeks, you won't even know the difference anymore. So I tried it. You know what? I have drank now for for almost a year and a half. I can't tell the difference anymore. It took about three or four weeks for me to develop that taste for that, that I forgot what the other tastes are like. You know what? I drank a real Coke the other day. I didn't even like it anymore. I'm used now. See, I've got myself trained. And I don't remember where I read it. It was one of those great, you know, great psychological things that I read at some point in my life. It says, some guy said one time that it takes three or four weeks to develop a really bad habit. Train your flesh, you know, and, and a place where you're hooked on it. But then he also said that it takes somewhere between six and eight months to break a really bad habit, see? One that totally controls you. Why? Because you get your flesh ingrained. Now, that's why people have such a time, tough time kicking cigarettes. People have such a tough time kicking booze or di- or dope. Or anything you see there's a great principle in 1st Corinthians chapter 6 verse 12 and I want to give you this this is a good principle it simply says this all things are lawful unto me but all things are not expedient the word expedient means wise then he goes on and says all things are lawful unto me but I will not be brought under the power of any now you know what that verse says the verse says we're not under the law we can pretty much do whatever we want to do we don't have any restraints like the Old Testament law did and Paul's saying there, you've got to use some discretion. He says, all things may be lawful, but he says, you've got to be careful that what you do that is okay don't take control of you, that you're always over it, it's not over you. See? That's what he's saying. Now, another great verse that goes along with that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, where he says basically the same thing, but then he, he explains uh, a little bit farther. He says all things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Now, that's a great word, edify. That's my job as a pastor, by the way. I mean, I may do a lot of things to you, say a lot of things to you. Some of them aren't so nice. Some of them hurt. Some of them you don't like. Uh, but the bottom line is, at the end of whatever I say, I don't ever want to leave you down in the gutter. I may run over with you with a bus, but I will back up and see if you're all right. That's edifying, see? That's edifying. My job is to always leave you. I don't care when it is. If it's Thursday night, if it's Sunday morning, if it's our one-on-one time together. You know what my number one focus is? My number one focus is to always leave you better than I find you. That's my, that's my focus. Whatever I do, you come over to my house, I want you to leave better than when you came. I want you to leave stronger. I want you to leave more encouraged. When we meet on Sunday morning, I may say some hard things sometimes. I, I haven't purposely tried to do today. i try to not make this in a, in a general sense uh, as a summary. But I'm sure that it, it fell on some of your toes maybe. I don't mean to do that. But you know what? Uh, it's, that's, that's, it's edifying is the key. I want you to leave here better than you came. And you know, the word edify means that I help you. It picks you up. It encourages you. It admonishes you, but with a helping hand. It rebukes you, but with a loving offer that I'll help you, see? In other words, encouraging you, but never destroying you. Uh, When it comes to the ministry and dealing with you, I'll never do anything to destroy you. I'll never do anything to destroy you. You may do something to destroy yourself, but I'll never do anything to destroy you because my job, and really your job as a Christian, is we need to edify each other. We We don't do any value of tearing each other down. We, we, we exist here to, if everybody in the church would edify everybody else, that's the way it's supposed to be. You say, what's the point of all this? The point is this. When you walk in the flesh and not in the Spirit, it takes a lot longer to fix it than it does to break it. And my friend, the longer you wait to do it right, the harder it becomes. I know a preacher, his name is Greg Stepp. And Greg Eastep, back in the 60s and the 70s, somewhere got the idea that, as a Christian, we don't have to pay federal income taxes. Greg Eastep had a ministry where around the churches, and he showed people how that in the Constitution, that we really don't have to pay federal income taxes, and therefore many, many churches, many, many pastors, along with Greg Eastep, stopped paying federal income taxes. Greg Eastep is now in a federal penitentiary someplace you ever go through an IRS audit? In my life, I've never, I mean, I went through the audits, but I mean, I, I tell my, my, my guy, I said, here's the bottom line. I said, don't, don't give them one more dime than they deserve and don't give them one less dime than you have to. You know, Give them what they need. Don't ever play with them. And I, I, I've, in my lifetime, I've dealt with two or three people who got clobbered by the IRS. I had one guy years ago, and he was a nice guy. And he wasn't, he wasn't a crook by any stretch of the imagination, but the IRS doesn't care. He got the idea that he... I don't know where he got it, but he got the idea that he he wasn't even saved at this time. And he got the idea that he could get a 501c uh, tax exemption and start a, a church in his own home, calling his family to church. See? And therefore, he didn't have to pay income tax. And he got the 501c, and for, for nine years, he didn't pay taxes. But in time... They'll catch up to you. Now, I I tell you, with the IRS, people that do this, they think, well, they won't ever catch me. They got so many people. Let me tell you something. They're watching you through your television when you're watching TV, probably. You know those black helicopters flying over your house? That's the IRS looking for you. They'll always get you. After nine years, they finally got him. And he thought he was clean. And you know what happened? It destroyed him. It destroyed him. Because he not only... Here's the IRS. He not only owed nine years of back taxes, but then they put a penalty on those nine years back taxes. Then, oh, it ain't done yet. Then they went back and figured all the interest for that nine years taxes. And then they figured the interest to he paid it on a daily basis, on a penalty on a daily basis, and when he wound up, I think he wound up owing for nine years taxes. This was 25, 30 years ago. I think he wound up owing something like 56, dollars $80,000. And when they were all done, he owed almost a million dollars in back taxes. Now, how in the world do you ever pay that off? You don't. You don't. You don't. And it isn't the fact that what the bad choice that he made. If they would have just said, you made a bad choice, you need to pay $80,000. He could have lived with that. It was the compounding interest. It was the penalties. It was the daily interest at 28% for nine years. My point is this. Bad choices that you make in life don't just stay single bad choices. They compound themselves. They add interest to themselves. They develop themselves. They add a penalties phase to it. And the interest is compounded every day of your life. You want to hear a miraculous story? He got out of it. He came to one of my Monday night Bible studies. And I won him to Christ. He told me this story. Scared me to death. I thought, what in the world? This guy's going down to Leavenworth. But when he got saved, when he got saved, he actually, literally, and some of you that are the old timers would know who this guy was if I told you his name. He actually, when he... Got saved, he got saved. He had come to the end of himself. And through the process of getting a lawyer, Ronnie Deutsch. <laughs> you ever see her on television? <laughs> Ronnie Deutsch saved me pennies on a dollar. I don't know who he got. But he got he got a lawyer. That, <laughs> that lawyer got it broken down to the place where he got him off. But here's the thing. He lost everything he had. He lost his house. He lost his car. He lost his job. He, lost. he basically had to go down to nothing and start over again. But you know what? He made it. Five years later, his life was functional. He was doing God's service. He was in the ministry. He was doing everything he needed to do. And it's because he came come to the end of self and he paid the penalties Of the bad choices. God will get you out of it. God will get you out of it. But sometimes you have to make some absolutely radical changes in your life. I had a man that we knew many, many years ago. His name was Morgan Maxfield. Morgan Maxfield, many of you might remember him. He was a, a big guy in Kansas City. Morgan Maxfield was a millionaire. He was connected with Worlds of Fun. He lived out on the property, Worlds of Fun, and Morgan Maxfield uh, uh, was somewhat of a, you know, uh, somewhat of a, a a playboy type of guy, and uh, he had a lot of money and uh, wasn't shaved, and uh, pretty much flitted around, did whatever he wanted to do wherever he wanted to do it, and uh, uh, he used to come to my Monday night Bible studies. Uh, we were never friends. I would, he would say hi to me. And he would, he would, but I would watch him on Monday night Bible studies. He'd come in after everybody got started. He'd sit in the back. And I remember one night when I gave the invitation, he raised his hand that he wouldn't say, but he never would come forward. And then he'd get up and he'd leave. And Morgan Maxfield was killed in a plane crash right down here in the city airport a number of years ago. And what he had, he had a twin-engine plane. He used to fly all the place. And what he had, he had, he had two girlfriends in a plane and a couple of buddies in a plane, twin-engine plane. And they were flying to go, to go to Lake Tahoe or someplace out there. And he took off from downtown airport. And when he took off from downtown airport, he got airborne about, oh, right off, the, right off the runway. And he was up about 500 feet, 800 feet, just got taken off. And an engine, the engine, uh, one of his engines died out. And uh, Morgan Maxfield, and, uh, Morgan Maxfield uh, who was a good pilot, he was a very good pilot, he flew everywhere. He, he crashed that plane, <coughs> and everybody was killed in the crash. When the FAA did an investigation, <coughs> and I talked, to, uh, I talked to one of the guys that uh, <coughs> was connected <coughs> with the FAA, he said that when they put it all together, when he took off the engine in that plane threw a rod, and he said the engine still functioned, but what Morgan tried to do is he tried to come back in and land. And he said, that was, that, was, uh, that was the wrong thing to do. He said, the guy said that when you get into a situation with a twin-engine plane, it's got two engines on it, and you're, you're getting off the runway, and you're just at a low altitude, and he was like about 800, 900 feet. He says, you will never get back to the field. He says, what you have to do in that particular case is the most unnerving, the most terrifying thing that you could ever think of doing. He says, you've got to ram both throttle throttles forward, he says the plane is going to vibrate like it's going to come apart because that engine is throwing that rod around in there. But he says you've got to bank that plane to the left, put it into a steep dive, even though you're at 900 feet, a steep dive that you're going to pull out before it and you've got to pick up speed. In other words, you come up. When it starts to go crazy, you've got to ram the throttles forward, turn it over and come into a, a sweet dive, pick up some speed, because the problem is you didn't have enough speed to stay up, and come around and pick up that speed and bring it all the way around and then bring it in and, and then try to land it. That's the only way you can survive that kind, of, that kind of problem. Well, he said it's a terrifying thing. He said when you ram those throttles forward, the whole plane just feels like it's going to come apart. He says the whole, it's terrifying. He says that when you've got a plane that's only 800 feet and it's shaking like that, to be able to put that plane into that dive, that steep dive, and hold it around, it's the most terrifying thing you could ever... It takes absolute concentration and absolute uh, poise in everything that you do. In other words, some circumstances of life, like his, require an ultra-radical move to survive. The norm doesn't work anymore. The standard things won't fix it. There's some circumstances you find yourself in that all you can do is make that radical turn to the left, ram the far throttles forward, and bring that baby around. And most people, unfortunately, like Morgan Maxfield, either did not have the expertise or the courage to be able to do that in the moment of a time of panic. And that's no reflection on him. I would have been there, I would have probably been jumping out the window. But that's what happens many times in our lives. We have to make, we have to make those radical decisions. We have to make those radical decisions. You know what? Let's let's face it. In the light of the next message, when we get into Romans chapter 8 in particular, there's two things you're going to come to realize, and this fits right in what we're talking about today. You only have one body to serve the Lord with. You only have one life to give Him. And we waste so much of that time, and we ruin our bodies. But all the things that we do to it, there's going to come a day when we won't have we won't have anything to be able to give God. We have to we have to keep our bad choices and our bad uh, our bad uh, decisions to a minimum. One last thing I want to say, and then I'm going to be done. I don't want to leave you without giving you a solution. I don't want to say the things I've said without bringing the edification in it, that if you find yourself in that way this morning, I'm going to tell you what you can do. You know, I watched this week the sentencing of O.J. Simpson. I don't know how many of you got to watch it. It was one of the most compelling things I think I've ever seen in my life. I, I don't really follow it, and I don't really care one way or the other whether he's guilty or he's not. That's not my point. What I saw was this. If you saw the whole thing, when he stood up before the judge sentenced him, and he was a woman judge, she read him the Riot Act. He had just stood up and made a very tearful, remorseful plea for mercy. He'd been found guilty on all counts. It wasn't a point at this time where he was asking for justice, because justice was going to put him in the way for a long time. He made a very good plea, very emotional, and he asked the, basically the judge. He tried to explain his position, and he basically asked the judge for mercy. Let me tell you something. The judge didn't show him any mercy. For about 9, 10, 15, 12 minutes, she systematically came down a list of things and just took him apart She dealt with his arrogance. She dealt with his his underhanded stuff with all the money and the Goldman's and all the things that he said. She left him absolutely, absolutely stark naked before she sentenced him. She did to him what nobody had ever done in the history of his life. Judge Edo, whatever his name was, he never came close to this gal. This gal terrified me, and I wasn't even in her courtroom. Well, I'm never moving to Las Vegas as long as she's on the bench. She was something else. She took him apart, and she absolutely showed him, right or wrong, you can decide, I don't care, that was not my point, right or wrong, she absolutely showed him absolutely no mercy. I sat there watching that, and I thought to myself, you know what, the truth of the matter is, there's not a whole lot of difference between us and O.J., We just never really got caught. Oh, maybe we never killed anybody. But as I sat there and I listened to her read him the riot act and just strip him down and show him absolutely no mercy, I thought to myself, you know what? I am so thankful because I'm just as guilty as he is. I'm so thankful that my judge showed me mercy. The Lord had every right to treat me just like she treated him. Don't had every right to throw the book at me and send me away for returning a lake of fire, and yet my judge, unlike that judge, showed me mercy. And I thought to myself, I am so thankful I'm saved, and that my judge, my God, is a merciful God. Now I never want to leave you any better than I find you, ladies and gentlemen. Now let me give you five things if you find yourself in this scenario, and then I'm done. We've got plenty of time here. Don't worry. Five things that you need to do if you are in this situation or you deal with somebody at work in this situation. First of all, you need to get honest. You need to realize that you're in this mess because of a multitude of bad choices. Second thing is you need to get a perspective. God's not against you. He's not your enemy. But He's not going to come down and wipe it all away. You're never going to learn that way. The third thing, you need to get help. You need to get a plan. You need to let somebody begin to deal biblically. You need what my buddy needed. You need an IRS tax attorney. I'm your tax attorney. I'll put a plan together. I'll get you around the penalties. I may not be able to get you around all of them, but I'll show you how you can get through them. I'll show you how you can take a million dollar debt and squash it down like Ronnie Deutsch to a couple pennies on a dollar but you need to stop making bad choices. You need to begin to deal with this problem, recognize this problem, get yourself out of the way of this problem, and then the fourth thing, don't get in a hurry. There's no overnight solution, no magic pill, but there are some lessons to learn. And then the fifth thing, and this should have been the first thing, but I want to use it for dramatics here, so let me put the first thing last. Put God first in everything you do. Because this has been a real issue all along, you know. So many people, when they get into the bad circumstances, God's people, when they get into bad circumstances, they make God their enemy. They get mad at God for a situation that they caused. God had nothing to do with it. God has nothing but the best for you. It's our bad choices that make these things happen. And then we get mad at God. That's the worst thing you can do. Put God first in everything you do. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 8, draw nigh to God and He'll draw nigh to you. Make God your closest ally in this time. Make Get so close to God in everything that you do. Prioritize your life and put God and the things of God the number one place in your life. It is your only lifeline. It's the only way out. It's the only thing you're going to be able to do to fix your scenario. And then you're going to have to start a program of accountability for your time, for your family, maybe for your finances or whatever else you're dealing with in your life. Accountability is absolutely crucial. And the problem with that is that most people don't have the discipline to to do that. But let me just say this to you, and I'm done. That's what this church is here for. There is absolutely no reason for any man or woman who's a member of this church, for you not to stand to the judgment seat of Christ and have everything that God wants for you. There's nothing held back here. There's nothing that you can't have. There's nothing that you can't accomplish. There's nothing that you can't do. But it's your choice. And again, I want to say this before I close. I am absolutely so proud of so many of you. So many of you were faced with scenarios that were over, overwhelming. So many of you came into this church with issues and problems and you struggled with things that most people never get past. You had compounding issues, and yet in your life, you chose the right course. You've put the things out of your world. You've quit making bad decisions. You let people help you make the right decisions, and you're well on your way. And that's why this New Year's Eve, I want to help you go the extra mile. I want to begin to edify and add and bring into those things into your world, everything that you need to be everything God wants you to be. Now, when we're dismissed here, Jamie will be back there in the back. You can... uh, Uh, You can uh, sign up for New Year's Eve and get your tickets, whatever you need to do. I love you. God bless you. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We do love you.